HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the University of California Press, publishers of Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food by Benjamin Alds Wurgaft. Learn more at ucpress.edu. This week on Meat and 3, we celebrate good news in the food world, from record-setting butter sculptures to the latest discoveries in crop cultivation. I think it was back in 2015. It was 2,370 pounds, and it was a Paris landscape. And so that became the Guinness World Record butter sculpture. We don't understand everything about the world. So plant breeding also lets us work with all the unknown, maybe discovered along the way. And we hear from the beloved chef and disaster relief organizer, Jose Andres. Well, World Central Kitchen, we're an organization that we like to be the first ones on the ground. And more often than not, we are the last ones on the ground. Tune in to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we are going to return to one of my favorite topics, that of water. Yes, water, water, the staff of life, uh, and something that we are running out of in certain parts of this country. So today we're going to be talking to Chuck Cullum, who is Central Arizona Projects, the CAP Manager of Colorado River Programs, which primarily focuses on developing and implementing policies and projects that will protect and enhance CAP's Colorado River water supply. Currently, Chuck is working on plans to develop new water supplies from local, regional, and international projects to augment the Colorado River system. He leads CAP's participation, Colorado River Environmental Protection and Enhancements through the Lower Colorado River Multi-Species Conservation Program. And as if that weren't enough, Chuck has more than 25 years of experience developing and managing surface and groundwater resources in Arizona and across the Colorado River Basin. He has led design, construction, and operation of underground storage and recharge projects and surface storage facilities, as well as groundwater development and recovery of the stored water. Prior to joining CAP in 2001, Chuck worked for Bookman Edmonston Engineering and for the Arizona Department of Water Resources. In other words, he has watery knowledge down to his marrow. Isn't that right, Chuck? I appreciate that. Yes, uh, down to my marrow. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day. And today is a holiday for most people. Why isn't it for you? Um, So at the Central Arizona Project, uh, we... uh, have moved from uh, recognizing Columbus Day and for 20 years recognize uh, uh, a more significant holiday from our perspective, which is uh, Martin Luther King Day. Oh, I see. So it isn't voting day. In other words, you're not going to get a day off to vote, but you will get a day off for Martin Luther King. That's Well, I, su- I think that's good, too. But, you know, hopefully voting will become a national holiday as well so that we can all get to the polls easily and without having to wait long times to vote. Chuck, let's get right into the business. So you are the manager at Central Arizona Project. What is that? What exactly does that mean? So the Central Arizona Project is a uh, 
from my perspective, an elegant piece of engineering infrastructure that takes Colorado River water from the Arizona border with California at um, uh, a reservoir called Lake Havasu and pumps it 336 miles through a series of pumping plants, canals, aqueducts, uh, siphons, and a regulatory reservoir to deliver um, about 1.6 million acre-feet of water every year to uh, about 5 million people in central Arizona, um, almost half a million acres of irrigated agriculture, and is a primary water supply for 50 cities and towns and uh, 11 Native American tribes. That is a huge amount of pressure on one water system, isn't it? That's like that's an astonishing thing to explain. Um, you know what I want you to do now is I want you to explain the very arcane and bizarre rules and regulations that govern water um, allocations. I think they're called the prior appropriation doctrine. Explain yes. to people what that means, because that is a very important part, piece of this puzzle for the Southwest of the United States. Uh, yes. The, the way in which the legal and regulatory framework for Western water, um, we prefer um, Byzantine rather than bizarre. Um, <laughs> I'm not yes. sure one is Byzantine is really other. a much better explanation, a much better descriptor. Um, it is full of arcane uh, terms and and uh, uh, principles, but in essence, um, ever since the West has been uh, developed as part of the United States, uh, the way in which the laws and regulations have been put in place have recognized scarcity. And in order to deal with droughts and, in many cases, floods, one of the first principles of Western water, um, and that extends really from New Mexico, Colorado, uh, uh, Wyoming and Montana west to the Pacific Ocean, uh, all the states in, wow. in that region adhere to what is called the prior appropriation doctrine. That's a complicated way to say the first person who arrives and puts the water to beneficial use has the senior or prior right. So in terms of, in, in times of scarcity, in drought and shortage, those who have been using the water the longest have the senior or the better right. So if you come to the game late, and in the Central Arizona pro project context, we, our project was developed um, and authorized in 1968. So we came to uh, the Colorado River system at the very end of development. So we are the junior water user, and uh -huh. that means that um, uh, during a shortage or a curtailment, the central Arizona supply will be cut or reduced before senior water users, like those in the Yuma area who develop their water their Colorado River rights in the 1900s, 1906 to 1940, they have a better or senior right. So they are insulated from reductions because they've put the water to use. And an important component uh, of Western water law is that the Native American communities um, uh, were here prior to the establishment of the um, doctrine of prior appropriation. And so in most cases, uh, Native American communities, particularly on the Colorado River, have the most senior water right um, on Native American Day today. Um, it seems appropriate to recognize that many of those tribes have what's referred to as a time immemorial right, meaning they were here first, they have the best right to Colorado River water. And does that actually play out in practice? It does. I mean... Um, so the, um, the Colorado River Indian tribes of Arizona, uh, which have a, a large reservation in, near the town of Parker, Arizona, have um, a, a water right that um, is, uh, is 
the time immemorial right. It's the number one right in Arizona. It is arguably one of the most valuable water rights in Arizona. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, in I mean, I'm going way off script, as I warned you, I would. Um, but in a in a in a in a different world, it could become the fact that the Native American tribes end up controlling more water than anyone else and end up selling it back to farmers who need it for irrigation, for example, or towns that need municipal water. Is that so, is that a scenario that you could imagine happening? So that is already underway in central Arizona. Um, really? So, so as I, I mentioned, um, there are 11 Native American uh, tribes that are served by the Central Arizona Project. Um, uh-huh. They uh, all have uh, federally authorized uh, what are called Indian water rights settlements. So the tribes, um, because of Anglo development, had experienced curtailment in their right to um, water within the state of Arizona. And so these uh, 11 tribes, the, the largest is the Gila River Indian community. They uh-huh. achieved a water right settlement in 2004, recognizing that, you know, that's probably a century behind where it should have been. But uh, they achieved that settlement in 2004. It was authorized by Congress. And they have... Um, 311,000 acre-feet of Central Arizona project water that they are using to um, uh, to redevelop and reinvigorate their farms. They were originally an, an, agra- an agrarian so- society uh, south of Phoenix. They also have the right and are exercising that right to market a portion of their water to uh-huh. Uh, the urban areas in central Arizona. So they have lease agreements with the city of Phoenix, the city of Scottsdale, Mesa. So six of the major um, valley communities um, uh, have uh, marketing relationships with the Gila River Indian community that benefit both the community and those growing cities. Right. Very interesting. Um, I'm not going to ask you uh, to explain the water needs for agriculture and population sectors, but I I just want to mention briefly in passing that Arizona, for people who didn't realize this, and I was one of them, Arizona is actually an enormous agricultural center for the United States. It's the lettuce capital of the U.S., and they grow lots of other um, other crops that we rely on, especially in the winter months. And then there's also a robust uh, animal agriculture sector in uh, Arizona as well. Isn't that right, Chuck? That's correct. Um, those senior water users in Yuma that I mentioned earlier uh-huh. uh, primarily use their Colorado River water to grow the winter vegetables that um, that you mentioned. So something like 90% of the lettuce in January and February comes from the growers in Arizona in the Yuma area using Colorado River water. So most of the state's water does come from the Colorado River. And then also there are groundwater supplies. But you met in your bio, it says that you develop new water supplies. How do you develop new water supplies? So the way in which we have worked and are working to augment the uh, Colorado River water supply um, are really three approaches. One is we try and make the existing systems more efficient, so reducing losses, um, uh, investing in higher efficiency irrigation and water delivery technology. So that's one way that we increase um, uh, uh, the availability of supply. It's uh, uh, the farmers refer to it as uh, more crop per drop um, as a way <laughs> to think about it. Um, the second thing that we do is we're working to uh, facilitate the development of um, desalination technologies, both um, within the CEP service area. There are lots of, there's a significant amount of poor quality groundwater. Um, It's brackish groundwater that is currently 
um, unused, but it's a resource with the that with the application of modern uh, reverse osmosis technology could be developed and delivered as a new water supply. And then third, um, taking that a step further is uh, to explore opportunities to develop seawater um, uh, desalinization programs, uh, both with the Republic of Mexico and our neighbors to the West, California. Wow. I mean, isn't desalinization incredibly expensive still? Um, the Yes. Uh, in a relative <laughs> sense, short answer. Yeah. Yeah. Short. Sure, yeah, exactly. In a relative sense, it is um, significantly more expensive. It's about ten times the cost of the existing Colorado River supply. So we deliver water to our customers at about two hundred dollars an acre foot. Uh, rough numbers, all in for seawater projects, is on the order of two thousand dollars an acre foot. However, and, and how much you, is an acre foot, Chuck? Explain to um, us what that is. So an acre foot is uh, about 360,000 gallons. Um, it's okay. It's the amount of water it takes to, to inundate uh, essentially a football field to a depth of one foot. It is, when you think about arcane and Byzantine, an acre foot <laughs> as, a, as a, uh, a unit of measure fits perfectly within that context. It, it sure does. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. You've been in your job for nearly 20 years, and you've obviously been involved in water uh, you know, conservation and water hydrology uh, for longer than that. What, how different is today from what you saw at the beginning of your career or even 10 years ago? So uh, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to frame it in three ways. One is um, the current environment for working together, working across international boundaries, across state boundaries, um, working with Native American communities, working with uh, non-governmental environmental organizations is entirely different than it was 20, 25 years ago. Today, it's an absolute must to engage with the broadest range of stakeholders to, um, uh, in, to be inclusive in the discussion and to reach the broadest consensus possible in trying to achieve um, what is a shop-worn phrase, but which is true in the water community, which is a win-win solution. Mm-hmm. Um, 25 years ago, there was an appetite for um, uh, arrangements or approaches that generated winners and losers. Um, What we have all learned, um, some more easier than others, is that that we are linked and connected by rivers. We're linked together by these water systems. And the more people who are supportive and uh, and committed to a solution, the more durable it is. The, that's a long way to say you can roll one group of people once, but they're going to sue you in the next couple of years. And yeah. then <laughs> you run the risk of unraveling good work. So right, right. Bring folks good. together, bring them along. The multi-species conservation program in Arizona and in the lower Colorado River is an example of that. We came together 15 years ago as water users, federal regulators, and um, uh, water using communities in Arizona, California, and Nevada, and committed to one another that we would fund programs and projects to make the environment of the lower Colorado River better for endangered and threatened species. That, A, is a good, right thing to do, and B, it insulates the water-using community from litigation under the Endangered Species Act. And so doing the right thing with a broad cohort of good people has allowed us to uh, manage this system for the past 15 years without environmental litigation. You compare that to the Colorado, uh-huh. to the California uh, Bay Delta system, which is perpetually litigated. We have more certainty, more reliability, 
and it's a lot more fun. Yeah, of course. Um, what about just like actual volume of water? I mean, you've experienced a long-term drought in Arizona. Isn't that true? Just as California did? I it, mean, yes. what do you see in terms of like your volume of groundwater depletion? Isn't there, because I know California, they just keep drilling more and more wells to feed all those trees. Um, have you had a similar kind of... Um, encroachment into your groundwater system, uh, uh, given the volume of agriculture that goes on in, in, in uh, Arizona? Yeah, so let me, um, let me utilize that question to pivot back to what you asked. What other sure. things have that we're doing differently or thinking differently a decade ago? So um, now, um, since about 2000, 2005, we have... Uh, we understand the deeper range of variability in the Colorado River water supply. So we intentionally model and project dark, scary, dry scenarios <laughs> so that we, um, by understanding what the, the risk that we might face, it allows us to then um, take incremental steps to address that risk instead of waking up in 2025 and seeing a reservoir that's darn near empty um, and figuring out what to do in the next six months. So what we've undertaken for the past decade is to attempt to put incremental reductions, conservation incentives, storage incentives to try and stave off the um, hotter, drier future that science tells us we need to prepare for. That leads directly to what you asked about, um, if not Colorado River water, what are folks going to do in central Arizona, particularly right. the agricultural community? Um, the agricultural users in central Arizona have known since 2000, 2004, that eventually the Colorado River would um, uh suffer reductions uh, sufficient that they would have uh, less Colorado River supply to essentially no Colorado River supply. And mm -hmm. so they have been implementing water efficiency programs. Uh, the on-farm efficiency for the central Arizona districts is about 85% efficient, which is one of the highest in the nation. So for every drop of water that's delivered to their farms, 85% of it goes to actually growing the crop. Um, about 10% it leaches into the aquifer and 3 to 5% is evaporation loss. Sure. So um, they have invested um, over $600 million in irrigation efficiency technologies, um, drip systems, sprinkler systems, the, the stuff you read about. Um, but they are also enhancing their groundwater capacity. Um, they started as groundwater districts in the 60s. They have been using Colorado River supplies since the 90s, and they are going to shrink as districts um, with less Colorado River water, meaning there'll be less irrigated acreage, and they will uh, be supplied primarily by groundwater by the mid-2030s. That's their plan. What is also happening is that agricultural lands in central Arizona are urbanizing. So uh -huh. um, urban acreage uses uh, significantly less water than agricultural acreage. So um, what the future is in central Arizona is a transition from cotton to tile roofs. Some people describe it that way. Um, with high-efficiency um, homes and low outdoor water use, uh, the projections are that folks will be able to live within that reduced supply. Really? So is yeah. that the regulatory framework that we were talking about before we started the show, about how the, how the groundwater is going to be managed? Yes. So Is partly um, that just kind of like transitioning the land from agricultural use to urban use? Um, that doesn't seem like a good thing, Chuck. So let's let's explore that a little more, which is yeah. uh, in 1980, uh, Arizona's 
forward-thinking water management leaders passed the Arizona Groundwater Management Act. That required um, explicit management of groundwater pumping in the three most populous counties in Arizona, Maricopa, Pinal, and Pima County. It also required agriculture in that in those counties to be capped. There would be no ah. expansion of agriculture in those counties from 1980 forward, and they are required to achieve um, 75 to 80% on-farm efficiency. Our farmers and the Central Arizona Project system have exceeded that through the investment in um, irrigation efficiencies, uh, right. irrigation efficiency technology. Most of that driver actually is crop quality rather than water savings. They get more money for high-quality vegetables than um, than if you use lower efficiency technology. It's a, actually uh-huh. a market-driven thing. So, and, and let me let me stop you for a second, just to um, because the, the the technology that you're describing, um, these very sophisticated drip irrigation systems and so on, these this is coming out of the actual farmers' pockets, or is there some kind of state or federal effort to um, help them with that? I'm just curious. I mean, you know, it's it's neither here nor there as far as what we're talking about, but I'm just curious because that's that's some expensive. Uh, infrastructural development that farmers are expected to shoulder the burden of unless you tell me otherwise? No, uh, it's uh, what the the growers that we work with report is that it's their investment in the efficiency technology and the return on that investment is higher crop yield and higher Uh. dollar per commodity because they can guarantee the the um, uh, Del Monte, let's use bag salad, for example, they can uh, guarantee Del Monte the crop quality and um, harvest cycle to meet uh, that uh, predict- particular company's needs. I see. Um, I see. Because okay. you're using the great thing about farming in Arizona is it's sunny darn near every day. <laughs> so. <laughs> What you're going to manage is the um, uh, water application rate and fertilizer rate to achieve um, production uh, schedules. Right, right. And and let me ask you this. Is there a mechanism, I mean, or do the farms cooperate uh, in terms of how much water one pumps over the other? Like, what if one guy hasn't, you know, spent the money on the fabulous irrigation equipment and the other guy is much more efficient? Um how does that get resolved? I mean, not so, all people are created equal, right? So, I mean, in that sense, in the sense of doing the right thing. Right. So um, one of the things that happened in 1980 with the passage of the Groundwater Management Act was that each farm was allocated um, a what's called a water duty, and that uh-huh. is the, um, the amount of groundwater that they are allowed to pump uh, within the four corners of their property to achieve um, to 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 grow crops to farm. Right. So right. Um, so what that does is it protects one farmer from another. So uh, you know if uh, if they if two farmers have the same water duty, um, meaning uh, the equivalent. Uh, unit of water per acre, let's, let's make the math easy, two acre feet per acre. Uh-huh. Um, and one farmer um, has 10 acres, and because of his water efficiency, he can grow two crops. Another farmer with the same 20 acres, right? 10 acres, two acre feet per acre, 20 acre feet. Right. Um, the less efficient farmer can only grow one crop, um, they one grower is going to be able to in, generate more economic activity for the same groundwater pumping. The other fellow cannot increase his pumping to catch up on economic activity. He, so what I'm saying is that the amount of pumping is capped per farm, and that I was set it. in 1980. Right, right. That makes sense. And uh, talk about an incentive to be judicious in your water use. Oh, my God, that's the one. 
Um, you know, recently I read that uh, <clears throat> that there were a whole bunch of states that included uh, California, Utah, uh, Colorado. Uh, a sort of multi-state drought plan was signed earlier uh, this year. What 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 does that entail? Because all of those states draw off of the Colorado River as well. Isn't that true? That's correct. In um, May of this year, May of 2019, the seven basin states in the United States, which is Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, um, Arizona, California, and Nevada, signed the what is called the drought contingency plans. And there are a number of agreements that commit water users in those states to reduce their their use of Colorado River water when the storage in the reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, on the Colorado fall below certain triggers. So it's a way in which we cooperatively manage the supply um, and protect one another from overuse. One of the unique things about this arrangement is it is also linked to uh, an agreement between the United States and the Republic of Mexico. Mexico has an allocation of Colorado River water as well. And Uh so the seven states and the Republic of Mexico have agreed to manage how we will manage the Colorado River system through the drought that we're experiencing. And what it is essentially is volunteering to reduce water uses when um, our storage in this uh, Colorado River system falls below certain thresholds. Um, It's a proactive way uh, for, again, as I mentioned at the very, very beginning, for collaboration, cooperation, and a consensus-based management program recognizing that we're linked by this river, um, both in Mexico and the United States, and if we um, overuse it, we will all be harmed. Right. So there's an incentive for everyone to work closely together. Uh, that's right. great. We're going to take a and very it, short break right now and come right back with Chuck Collum, Collum uh, from the Central Arizona Project talking about water. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the University of California Press, publishers of Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food by Benjamin Aldsworgaff. Neither an advocate nor a critic of cultured meat, Benjamin Aldsworgaff spent five years researching the phenomenon. In Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food, he reveals how debates about lab-grown meat reach beyond debates about food, examining the links between appetite, growth, and capitalism. Could satiating the growing appetite for meat actually lead to our undoing? Are we simply using one technology to undo the damage caused by another? Like all problems in our food system, the meat problem is not merely a problem of production. It is intrinsically social and political, and it demands that we examine questions of justice and desirable modes of living in a shared and finite world. Pick up Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh, and the Future of Food by Benjamin Aldswergaft, Available now wherever books are sold. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm talking about water in Arizona with uh, the Central Arizona Projects Manager, uh, Chuck Cullum. Um, Chuck, we were talking about uh, the multi-state drought plan before the break. Um, Was there something else that you wanted to say? Because I think I kind of cut you off. I I wanted to... to to acknowledge what a tremendous accomplishment it is that the United States and Mexico and water users from Wyoming to, to Los Angeles agreed 
on how to actually in how to accept pain of reduced water supply. Um, and part of part of what folks recognized since about 2007 is the need the need for collaboration and if if as a water manager the fastest way to lose control of your system is for you to sue somebody over it and for a judge who sits far far away from your customers <laughs> to d- decide yours and your customers water future and so when mm-hmm. folks looked at examples across the west where you know litigation for 20 30 40 years is the norm we all chose to find a way, a path of compromise and i think that's unique in the west and perhaps unique in the country right now <laughs> yeah perhaps you make a good point there that is kind of astonishing because i think you said wyoming was part of this group uh and did you say montana also and those are both states where i associate more water than less water. I mean, I think of Arizona, New Mexico, Southern California as being really water challenged and uh, those other states, not so much. So it is remarkable to think that those states that don't face the kind of scary, uh, you know, water shortages that your states have been facing over the last decade are able to see uh, that far into the future and be willing to be cooperative with you guys. That is pretty amazing. Yeah, it was, um, it was uh, a, an arduous journey, but we did it together. Everybody <laughs> made it across the finish line at the end. Um, <laughs> and no litigation burst forth. No flames <laughs> had to be put out. <laughs> no water wasting, in other words. <laughs> Chuck, you are just a delightful guy. Um, so now looking forward to the future, do you anticipate a time when water usage will have to be more strictly monitored and strictly allocated? Like what, how, how would that happen? What, I mean, what, what does that look like to you? Do you think that's going to happen or, or is that just me, you know, creating that doom and gloom scenario described earlier on? <laughs> well, so one of the things that, that, um, that we're, uh, in some ways blessed with in in the lower basin states of California, Arizona, and Nevada, is that um, uh, because of Arizona's belligerence in the 40s and 50s when we sued California um, and wound up in the Supreme Court uh, in the Arizona versus California decree, um, one of the outcomes of that was that the Supreme Court directed the Secretary of the Interior to measure and monitor all the Colorado River water uses below Hoover Dam, below Lake Mead. Uh-huh. So, um, so we have um, what I would refer to as a, a referee. <laughs> the United wow. States, through the Secretary of the Interior, monitors and judges water use um, and make sure that um, everyone stays in their lane and uses only the amount of water that they're allocated under their contract. So we have a a leg up on many systems because we actually know who's using what, what the, what the, the rights and priorities are. Um, And, and that helps us make decisions. If there's uncertainty about, you know, how much water is uh, allocated to Los Angeles, it, it, that would make every year a very difficult year. Instead, we know how much they get. We know how much Central Arizona Project gets. And because we've been able to develop these agreements, um, we know, I know, uh, if Lake Mead falls below a certain level, I'll have less water to deliver to my customers. I can plan right. for that. I can invest. I can... I can go to my customers and say, if we create this incentive, this conservation incentive for you, will you reduce your water use? And nine times out of ten, they will. And Uh with farmers, we can go to our farmers and say, I would like to pay you to stop farming for a year. Take a holiday. Um, And believe it or not, people like to get paid not to do stuff. And so, Amazing. <laughs> right? Shocking. If, Whereas I like if, to do stuff and not get paid. I never work for money <laughs> if I can work for free. <laughs> right. 
Um, the the point being that um, by creating a framework uh, with certainty of outcome, we can then operate yeah. within that space, within that lane. Um, I right. can go to our customers and say we need to invest in X, Y, and Z, and that will result in either avoiding um, a, or curtailment because there'll be extra water in Lake Mead, or if there is a curtailment, you'll have this resource because we um, treated brackish groundwater. So, right. um, so when when you ask, you know, is there a time when we will be have higher levels of regulation? My answer is we're already in that time on the lower Colorado River system. Right, um, right. What what we're trying to do is to stretch that supply as far as we can and more importantly understand the risks going forward. We uh we're very interested in climate science and understanding how low the system might get with these scary um uh, global circulation model, emission scenario, cli- I'll use a technical term, climatey things, um, yeah. <laughs> how those manifest to our water supply so we can prepare. That's our job. We are delivering water to desert communities, and the more resilient we can make that water supply, the more certain our economic and human health and safety uh, concerns are. Yeah, this is a very tall order. Um, and I'm going to, because I often, I mean, my show is basically predicated on agricultural concerns. One of the things that I read, uh, maybe in that Civil Eats article, which is what turned me on to you, was um, you anticipated that farmers are going to see a 15% reduction in their water supply over the next year. And I'm wondering, does that mean that they will end up having to change their crop mix and, you know, change sort of their farming models or... How, how how does a farmer do with less with fifteen percent less when you're already theoretically at an eighty five percent level of efficiency? Yeah, and what what our growers are telling us is that um, their response uh, for a step down uh, from uh, a full supply to a eighty five percent supply is they'll simply reduce. Um, their farmed acres, their irrigated acres. Over the right. longer term, uh, some will transition to different crop mixes. Um, I think you'll see cotton transition out of central Arizona um, yeah. because cotton has a, a particularly uh, Pima cotton has a much higher water use than even upland cotton. Um, mm-hmm. So I, th- I think you'll see less of those crops. Uh, People are beginning to experiment with what's referred to as seasonal, uh, as deficit irrigation. And what deficit irrigation means that is for uh, permanent crops, uh, and I say permanent, an alfalfa or grass, grass hay is usually a, uh, persists for like five years. Um, uh-huh. The highest water use uh, months are June, July, and August, they're also the lowest productivity months because of the heat here in central Arizona. When it's right. 115 degrees, it takes a lot of water to, to grow grass and hay and alfalfa. So what folks are experimenting with is to irrigate only enough to keep the crop alive, not to actually produce an extra cutting of hay. Uh-huh. And then... Um, as soon as nighttime temperatures begin to cool off in August and September, then return to normal irrigation. And the idea is that you will um, forego a, a lower value crop cycle, that is a hay cutting that's not very valuable, um, but you'll save a ton of water. Uh-huh. And so right. the offset is that the water has more value than the saved water has more value than the um, uh, than the poor quality crop that you grow in the peak heat season. Right, but doesn't that have an impact on the bottom line of a farmer? I mean, how, how do they? Does the state compensate them for that, or do they? You know, or when you mentioned earlier in the show, you were saying that you know some farms will just not grow; they'll just leave their uh, fields fallow. And they'll get yeah, paid for that, but does that does that extend to what you're just describing now with the sort of reduced irrigation? 
so um, so yeah, um, a reduced water supply means pain for farmers over the long term. That's yeah. the fact of it. The state is uh, has no resources uh, to come in and to um, to pay these folks for the loss of water. So what the right. farmers are left with is if my water supply goes from four units to three units, how can I make the most with the most economic return with less water? Um, right. So, uh, you're, uh, so they have to make that economic decision. And the, the net result in most cases is going to be less, uh, less value from farming. Um, yep. And, uh, but there should be sufficient water to continue in a diminished way. That's, right. That's and, what and are everyone you, is, is banking on. Are, are you seeing a lot of, um, of farmers moving into solar uh, farming? Because that is happening up in the Northeast, and it's, it's, it's quite contentious up here because, um, you know, a lot of guys are not making enough money off of their crops, so they're just turning to solar, and then they make real money off of uh, returning, elect- you know, creating electricity for the grid. Is, do you see that trend happening in Arizona as well? I would think it would be really taking off there. We haven't seen it um, in central Arizona yet. Um, I, th- I don't know wow. what the constraints are. Part of it is generally transmission. Um, you know, the thing about solar is it needs to be close enough to um, a, a major um, uh, uh, switch, what I refer to as a switchyard, but a hub so that you can send the electrons to California, which right. where they are much more valuable. Um, so I, we haven't seen that in, in our irrigation districts. We have seen it in uh, Southern California irrigation districts in the Imperial Valley. Um, yeah. But, uh, I expect over the next decade, um, as uh, renewable requirements kick in, that we'll see more of that. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, and then I guess I'm going to let you wrap up here because it's almost two o'clock and I don't want to keep you past what I promised. But um, what what do you see as your biggest challenge going forward in terms of uh, conserving water, generating new water, uh, changing up farmland, you know, limiting population growth to a certain degree. I mean, you're going to have to do that, right? Um, you had me up until limiting population growth. Um, <laughs> um, uh, our most significant challenges um, over the next decade are, uh, I'll just uh, sort of, I'll walk through a couple of them. One is... Um, making sure that we have a clear understanding of the risks and vulnerabilities to our water supply. So we're always trying to better understand how, um, and I keep coming back to this, how a hotter, drier future um, impacts the water available to the Central Arizona Project. It, Im- yeah. it, uh, we understand that uh, temperature uh, implicates how long our snowpack in the Rockies persists, how it translates into stream flow. Um, but it also has implications on our demands within the service area, um, within the central Arizona. And so making sure that we're always trying to understand the range of futures. I'm much, I don't have to know as much about a wetter, cooler future to manage my supply, it's yes, right. these these risks of um, uh, pro- protracted droughts. You know, I want to know if we're in the middle of a mega drought that we saw in the tree ring records in the 1400s. Um, I want to know that more than uh, when I'm transitioning out of out of uh, drought. So the second thing I want to understand is. Uh, what other communities who use Colorado River water are doing? Are they um, are they likely to grow more uses of Colorado River water because that impacts me as a junior priority user? I want to understand that. Uh-huh. Um, and I want uh, CAP to be at the forefront of developing and implementing 
are facilitating the implementation of new supplies, whether it's reuse technology, irrigation efficiency, um, uh, desalinization. Um, our part of our mission is to be stewards of this four and a half billion dollar piece of infrastructure that takes water from the Colorado River and delivers it to the communities uh, in central Arizona. And we want to make sure that that the communities we serve have the best chance to um, make the best use of that infrastructure. So if we can find ways to keep the canal system full or fuller than it might have been, uh, we want to try and, and make that happen because delivering water into our service area has a demonstrable positive economic benefit, as as you might expect. Of course. Delivering yeah. water to a desert city uh, generates economic value, and yeah, we want to make sure that those communities have the best chance to, to thrive even uh, in the face of drought and uncertainty. So those right. are the things we're working on. Very interesting. Chuck, I can't thank you enough for joining me today and going through this with me. Um, I really learned a lot from you. I appreciate it. Uh, so now is your opportunity to promote yourself and your agency shamelessly. Can people learn more about uh, water management techniques, say, for example, if they're outside of the lower basin area, as you describe it? Um, wh- where can people arm themselves with more information about uh, water conservation and best use, best practices for water? Yeah, so the Central Arizona Project, uh, we maintain a, a website that uh, uh, has a ton of information about what uh, what we do, how we do it, um, how awesome we are. And, uh, <laughs> That's really what we want to get at. <laughs> and it's the yeah. centralarizonaproject.com. Thank you I'm very much, Chuck. I really times. appreciate your time today. <laughs> you yeah. bet, Katie. You've been great. Okay, and thanks to my sponsor, and thank you for my listening audience. I appreciate your attention this week and every week, and uh, we'll see you next week with another great show. Thanks for listening today. Bye-bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.